Well, welcome everybody, and thank you for joining our webcast today. As you know, the Association of Value-Based Cancer Care is responsible for information and dialogue in our ecosystem across all stakeholder groups. This ensures that patients will win on access and quality. We need to constantly improve and change our tactics and our deliverables in cancer care. This is why we hold these webcasts. This is why you're dialing in. We have key opinion leaders, the influencers, the important decision makers who are driving change in our ecosystem. Please join us, participate, ask questions, and offer your voice too. It's hugely important. So thank you for joining. We look forward to participating with you more. Stay safe. Thank you. Dr. Markman, thank you so much for moderating the ABBCC panel, uh, looking at who knew that cancer therapy might play a role in defeating COVID. I think when we first brought up the topic, we had heard of some studies going on and some observational curiosity was taking over with a lot of your colleagues. And of course, we put together a panel, which was remarkable. We had an awful lot of people there. So I guess my takeaway was that a lot of the activity in cancer seems to correspond with a positive effect on COVID and our situation that we're facing today. So, Maury, what was your takeaways from that panel? Were you as surprised as I was at the amount of activity and, and the hope that maybe we saw from this? Uh, absolutely, Bert. First of all, thank you very much for asking me to participate in the panel and for this conversation. I agree completely. You know, it's sort of interesting because obviously one could say right off the bat that there would be little, if any possibility that what we do in cancer would have a relationship with a serious infectious disease. Because obviously one of the worst things we can think of having to a cancer patient is becoming infected. And whether that's with a bacteria or a fungus or a virus. So the idea that we would somehow be doing anything to the immune system that to negatively impact that, which is unfortunately what a lot of our anti-cancer therapies do and one could think about that could be a positive, you'd say, well, that makes no sense. And then even the idea of somehow further stimulating the immune system or optimizing the immune system for the treatment of cancer, one would say, well, I'd be concerned about that since we know now that one of the ways that COVID exerts its very negative effects is by its impact on the normal immune system. So again, long answer to your question of yes, <laughs> I was surprised uh, right on the surface that one would be able to take these ideas that we use in cancer and move forward, but with the ingenuity of the remarkable group of, large group of individuals in pharma and academic oncology and community oncology, clinical trialists, there's some incredibly interesting ideas out there that have the real potential to help individuals who are unfortunate enough to become infected by COVID or might be infected by COVID. And Maury, what do you think was the Big takeaway, was it the ability for us to use T-cell technologies and others to stimulate the immune system, or was it, what was the mechanisms that you found most interesting that were being talked about? Well, there were a number. I mean, obviously, we had a wonderful conversation about the potential of T-cell technologies, of actually even using anti-neoplastic therapy directly, the autophysite. Talked a little bit about, of course, even the work that's been published about dexamethasone, which of course is a, a widely used drug in the anti-cancer space, both as a therapy, for example, lymphomas, or as a strategy to prevent nausea and vomiting. So a lot of experience in oncology there. Mm -hmm. 
so I think those are all potentially very interesting. Obviously, the, uh, there's tremendous excitement about the potential for a short-term effect of plasma therapy of, of it from individuals who have been infected by and recovered from COVID-19 formation of antibodies, where there's very strong evidence that that has a neutralizing effect and that one could use such therapies. And again, obviously, blood products of one kind or another right. are used very widely in oncology. And there's a lot of experience with the collection of blood products and using blood products for, um, and also in the, in the broader area, even of hematology, not, not only oncology, but hematology, oncology mm -hmm. and hematologic malignancy. So anyway, that was a tremendous discussion, uh, interest, uh, raises a lot of questions, but I think perhaps in the short term, uh, that is a strategy that might, if we have more data, be widely applicable, both from the point of view of a direct infusion of a product or potentially the ability to take that information and then make a product hyperimmune globulin or something of the sort that has neutralizing antibodies present within it that could be used to treat the infection. Of course, the ultimate goal here is vaccination, to actually right. have the individual's immune system create those antibodies somehow to be able to be protected. But until that's available, and nobody knows exactly when that will be available for widespread use, the idea of of somewhat artificially just giving the patient those antibodies and allowing those antibodies for at least in the short term to counteract the effect of the virus. So I, I would consider that to be potentially very promising, but we need far more data. Right. Uh, so what were the prospects for combination therapy, you know, the same way we've defeated HIV? And we heard some comments on that. Yeah, I think that, you know, again, a very, a lot of experience in oncology, uh, of course, you know, we started with single drugs. We went to combination regimens, which in many settings of oncology, in fact, I'd probably say the majority of settings, the best therapies are combination therapies, recognizing that, again, talking about cancer cells, they're very smart. They, in lay, lay terms, they will overcome the effects of a single drug. And that by using several drugs, one can impact the vulnerable portions of a cancer cell. So as you mentioned, HIV, same sort of concept, or quite frankly, even just bacterial infections. We often use combination therapies, particularly with very difficult bacteria that, that are known to be resistant or have the potential to become resistant. So I think the idea of combination therapies, obviously, you know, we now have two drugs that have been shown in phase three randomized trials, remdesivir and dexamethasone, you know, how one might combine those drugs either in the same patient or to potentially be used in sequence if in the appropriate setting. Obviously add now, uh, you know, potentially T-cell augmentative therapies, the idea that one could then, you know, obviously in the appropriate setting, potentially use plasma, uh, hyperimmune globulins. I, I think, you know, all of this remains to be sorted out. One of the things that we've learned, and we literally learn every day when, when I get up in the morning and I turn on my computer and there's another report of additional information coming out of various excellent centers around the world where they've learned a little about this or learned about that, they sequence this, they sequence that. And the idea now that of course there are these different phases uh, that the right. patient that is infected at some point, the individual becomes infected. Some of them we know never have any symptoms or very minimal symptoms. Uh, there's a period of time where there's that individual, maybe as many as long as five days when they're infectious, but they're not mm -hmm. ill. And then some people just recover. And right. then there are some patients who become quite ill. 
We also are learning, unfortunately, that there are individuals who recover, but they don't completely recover. Longer term complications, including to the heart. So I think the idea that there are going to be increasingly well-defined phases of the illness that impact different people in different ways will potentially allow strategies to be developed, drug strategies that will be developed specific for those individuals when they are in the different phases that will be hopefully more effective because it's, you know, unfortunately when we start, we started, it had to be a shotgun approach. And then we were dealing with just very sick people, individuals who were in the hospital who were ventilated. And, you know, that's where you started. But now as we learn more, hopefully we will be able to be much more uh, focused in our antiviral therapies. And again, I think combination regimens certainly make sense. But as we know, Bert, as you know, when you add more than one drug, there's not only the question of what is the drug doing, which drug is doing the positive things that added diversity synergistic, but what about the toxicities? This all becomes very complicated, but we have to figure it out. And I'm very proud of my colleagues who, many of whom have been lifelong or professionally lifelong cancer researchers who are now very appropriately and very successfully turning their attention to COVID-19. And so you hit on something that I think is a real big issue. And it's something as simple as we turn on the television in the morning and we learn something. You know, it goes to the whole problem of investigational studies, real world evidence, having to wait so long to get compiles of evidence, review them, rigorous review by the FDA, and finally, you know, a label expansion. But things move rapidly today, and and information moves rapidly. Why is not investigational studies stayed up with the pace? And why do we have to turn on the television in the morning to go, aha, maybe? Well, (laughs) it's a very broad topic. I've written about the absolute need for real-world evidence to basically, in the cancer space, of course, which my focus Uh, but we can absolutely turn that into this area as well. Uh, We need real evidence. We cannot wait for phase three randomized trials. Obviously, vaccines have to be done that way. No question about that. But in terms of what we're talking about, uh, new therapies, uh, repurposing drugs, we cannot wait. And we shouldn't have to wait for data phase three randomized trials. Real world data, wonderful experience that we talked about in terms of the plasma therapies, hyperimmunoglobulins, that's going to be real world data. It needs to be high quality and we should work together as an enterprise, as a country. The idea that we have, you know, has been reported uh, hundreds of trials, small trials, looking at hydroxychloroquine, when we could have done what was done in Great Britain, to mount a one large, well-done study with these drugs, dexamethasone, for example, as they did. Right. So we need to work, learn how to work together in trials, but we need to also learn how to effectively use real-world data. And I think that obviously implies a willingness to share data across organizations to basically eliminate many of the bottlenecks. HIPAA has been a wonderful advance, but that law was passed many years ago before the era we're in now. And we need to figure out a way. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic puts this right in the spotlight. We need to figure out how to work together quickly, use real-world data, use data from electronic health systems, be able to combine them, break down these barriers, break them out quickly, and get these answers quickly. We need to really reform dramatically the entire bureaucracy that puts 
quite frankly, uh, hurdles up to move yes. forward. Yeah. So, and I believe the silver lining of COVID is here, you know, in your statement just now, because it's an imperative that we change our thinking and we learn how to react because if we don't, the consequences are so severe. So I applaud you for those efforts and, you know, continue them. Let's go to another thing. You have these large cancer centers and we've been observing this, but there's also community oncology. And unfortunately we didn't have anyone from community oncology on your panel, but you know, I've heard you speak and others. It's not the lack of clinical studies, it's the lack of patients and studies. And, you know, if we're always looking at an NCI center or we're always looking at a big academic center, why are we not trying to farm these opportunities from community where let's say 65, 70%, maybe as high as 80% in some communities, uh, these patients reside? Well, I agree with you, obviously a thousand percent. Uh, as, you only as, can agree 100, Maury. You're a science guy. Come on. <laughs> well, the fact of the matter is, is that that is where the patients are, and the patients in the community have just as much interest, as do the doctors, in advancing the benefits of their patients through clinical research. And, you know, there are just so many bottlenecks. There's time, there's effort, there's cost, there's the requirements. There's so much blame to be put around and everyone is doing their job to the best they can, but we need to figure this one out. You know, the statement two to 3% of cancer patients participate in trials when we know that 75 to 80%, maybe 90% want to, because these strategies that are available today are, I will make that very clear. Participation in clinical trials that we're talking about, that's therapy. That's not yes. simply research. It's therapy. And often, in fact, increasingly, it's the best therapy for an individual patient. And it's not available because of, again, the bureaucracy, the bottlenecks. This needs to be fixed. And maybe, again, the silver lining, COVID-19 is going to basically mandate that we change the system. There is nobody in any part of this that is opposed to getting trials to patients and giving that opportunity. It's that everyone has their own sort of thing, their own place in this world, and they're comfortable, and it's sort of working. Bottom line, it isn't working. Right. We have 1,000-plus drugs out there that are exciting to be tested, 2 to 3% of cancer patients participating in trials. We know there's a problem, and it needs to be fixed, and I just hope it gets fixed sooner than later. I'm in agreement with you. And, you know, Maury, sometimes, I don't know if you remember, the comedian plays the waiter. He comes over your table. It's all set with the dishes, tablecloth. And he goes, poof, and he pulls the tablecloth off. And miraculously, everything stays on the table. COVID to me was, poof, and everything came off the table, which to me is a silver lining. So I'm really hopeful, just like you, that we can turn this into a mandate. So in closing, Maury, you're one of the most respected peers out there by your colleagues and everyone else in the industry and investigational studies and everything else. And that's why we wanted you to lead this panel and we're going to have you back. But what were your key takeaways from this panel? Well, I was <laughs> having a chance to listen to my colleagues. I was just so excited, so proud, quite frankly, 
of individuals, industry, academics. As you said, we didn't have a member of the community, but if we had, it would have been the same. How they're all working together to try to help patients and humanity to overcome this pandemic. It was just a wonderful thought for the future. And we're going to win because of the kinds of people we have working on the problem. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Markman. I mean, as always, appreciate your voice and your opinions. And we look forward, as you know, we're going to be back several more times with this. And we've been having a really interesting panel come up on vaccines. I love listening. These are just wonderful sessions. They're so informative. I mean, the idea of uh, this give and take discussions. I think, quite frankly, the panelists, they they learn things too. (laughs) New ideas. Well, you know what? I'd try that too. Well, you know, listen, we fulfill our mission. It's uh, the crazy idea we had when we put together ABPCC was, as you and I have gone through, you know, multiple years of going to the silo meetings, and we yes. talked about silos today, and they're all important. I mean, it, it, whether you're a nurse navigator, a drug researcher, physician, community hospitals, personalized medicine, liquid biopsy, you have to have your meetings. There are, you know, issues that are important. But we have an ecosystem in cancer that we're highly dependent on everyone's activities and collaborative coordination for that patient to get that outcome that we're looking for. And that's what we try to do. We try to bring together all stakeholders. We try to make sure that there is debate. There's no safe place. And, you know, some of the rules are, Maria, no PowerPoints. Don't read us slides. We don't need a history lesson. We all know. Tell us what's really going on today, real world, and where we're going to be tomorrow. If we stay true to that mission, I think you, like everyone else, will continue and me to learn and benefit. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. So thanks for joining again this morning, and we'll see you around the circuit again. Absolutely. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Bert. Well, gee, that was just great today, and thank you for joining. Thank you to our faculty and our panelists. As usual, great content, and the sharing of information, usually important if we are going to improve access and the quality care that we're responsible for delivering, along with change in this ecosystem. Like today, there'll be other and future webcasts. We cover all topics and all stakeholders. Stay tuned. Also, we post this on our website. It's very important that you can dial down and share with your colleagues. So we encourage you to do that. Additionally, if any of you have any comments, send them in through our website. If anyone would like to participate in speaking or has some other ideas, please share them with us. That's our mission. Thank you for joining. Talk again.